Yeah, so chapter number three, and we'll begin in verse number eight. And we'll read down to verse number 13 this morning as we look at the local assembly. Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, beginning there. The word of God says this. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Yeshua, the son of Josedek, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests, and the Levites, and all that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem. And appointed the Levites from 20 years old upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Yeshua with his sons and his brethren, Kadamil and his sons and the sons of Judah together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the son of Henadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, as symbols, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. And they sat together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good for his mercy endureth forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Let's just pause for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for who you are this morning. And as we come together, uh, Lord, to just uh, be in your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. I pray, Lord, that you would use me. Help me, Lord, again in my weakness. I ask that you would give me strength. But Lord, help the word of God to come alive to us this morning. And help us to see and take application for our local assembly today as we look back to the local assembly of Jerusalem as they gathered to be about your work. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us, you would teach us, you would show us from your word that which you would have us to see in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to look at the local assembly this morning and, and, and draw some parallels from the local assembly that were gathered in Jerusalem all those years ago to the local assembly today. But before we do that, I wanted to just uh, think about the local assembly and, and what it consists of and what really it should be about. And when I was doing this, I was, I was studying for this and I was looking and I came across uh, a survey that was done by pastors. And the survey was um, kind of paraphrasing a little, but the survey was really about what the pastors found were top qualities of good serving local assembly church members. So these pastors were interviewed about what the, the top qualities of good church members are. And, and, and they, they put them together and here's the top 10 and this is the order they came in. And the number one quality that they appreciated as pastors was Bible knowledge. Um, because they said that those that increase in their Bible knowledge uh, generally do increase in their work in the local church because they see that it's, it's God's church and that's what we should be about. Uh, then the second one was personal devotions. Again, the pastors were encouraged by those that spent time uh, working together uh, uh, with the Lord in terms of their private devotional time. 
Um, the third top quality was worship, that the, the church members regularly participated in the worship services. So when the church had a, a service on, the people were there, and that was a, a quality that was appreciated by the pastors. Number four in the list was witnessing. So pastors were encouraged, and uh, when the church members went out and did witnessing, and as particularly their own personal evangelism, as, as much as corporate evangelism. And again, that was one of the qualities, top qualities of, of top church members. Uh, the fifth one that they reported were those that uh, got involved in the, the different ministries of the church, whether it be lay preaching or uh, any of the other outreaches. Uh, number six was missions. So again, um, those that were concerned about missions, um, supported missions, took uh, an interest in promoting missions within the church. Again, that was a quality. Number seven on the list, I probably put this at number two, but there you go, was given. I'm only, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. I'm only joking. I put it at number one. Uh, given member, <laughs> members that give were generally committed members to the church. And, and again, that was a top quality. Uh, number eight, fellowship. Again, people that were involved in you know, all the fellowship outreaches and being part of that and, and growing uh, together as the body of Christ. And you know that takes takes a little uh, sacrifice um, on the part of the individual for the sake of the body, and that was a top quality. Uh, number nine on the list was a distinctive lifestyle. So again, this whole concept that those that are active, serving church members that are committed to the cause, uh, generally you can see a different uh, characteristic or lifestyle in them. You can see Christ in them, really. You can, you know, those that are fully committed. And number 10 was attitude towards the church. You know, where did it rate in priorities? How important was the body of Christ, uh, etc. So those were 10, uh, the top 10 things that the pastors, when they were interviewed about what makes a top church member or quality church members, these were the things that they seen that these members identified. And if I was to try and condense this down, this list, into really what a healthy, because this is what really is the pastors are saying, what does a healthy church member look like? Uh, I want to take that and take it to the next level. What does a healthy church body look like? What does a healthy local assembly look like? And it's all those things in, those li- in that list, but I'm going to condense them down into three categories that we're going to have a look at this morning. Because when you boil it down, really you're dealing with work, worship, and witness. And those three things are, the, are the, the gauge of where the local body is. It's also a gauge of where you are individually in the Lord, but more importantly, the health of the body is determined, I think, by those three categories. Our work, our worship, and our witness. And that's all part of the healthy body. So as we get into Ezra chapter 3 this morning, we're going to go back in time. And we're going to have a look at the local assembly gathered in Jerusalem. So, you know, they were a group of, of believers that were gathered together to do the work of the Lord. And we want to examine them under these three categories, their work, their worship, and their witness, and see how they measure up and see what we can learn for today. So we look at the interpretation, and then we get to the end, and we take some application. How can we apply those lessons, good or bad, to our local assembly today? So, turn with me then to verse number 8 again, and we'll have a look, and we'll have a look, firstly, at the work of the local assembly. Look at verse 8. 
Now in the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, and Yeshua, the son of Josedach, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Yeshua with his sons and his brethren, Kadamil, and his sons and the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the son of Hedadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. So as we consider the work of the local assembly at Jerusalem in these two uh, verses here, we want to really think about two points. And the first point is that it was a delayed work. It was a delayed work. Because if we turn back to verse uh, number 6, which is where we uh, kind of left off with uh, last uh, week, last Sunday morning, it says, From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they had done some work last time around, if you remember. They built the altar. And that's important. That was a central piece, no doubt. But that verse tells us that the foundation was not yet laid. Now when we get to verse 8, it says, Now in the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, began Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, Yeshua, the son of Joseph, the remnant of the brethren, the place, etc., etc., gets to the end to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. So, From verse 6 to where we are now, a period of time has passed. So they're on the first day of the seventh month. Now they're on the the second month in the second year. So time has passed. Time has passed. And uh, the work has been delayed. Now, again, we can use application and illustration in our own lives. Because I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a tendency to start things and not finish them. Yes? Okay, so you're thinking now of every little DIY project that you've got, or every grand idea that you've started, you know, or every hobby that you've started, or every, everything you're going to, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it well, and, and I'm going to get it done. You start it and things are going brilliant, and then little distractions come along and it gets put to the back burner. And then days pass, weeks pass, months pass, and you say, oh, I need to get back. I need to get back to that. I need to do it. It needs to be done, but we never get it done. And this is what's happened here. The remnant, they've built the altar. But at the end of verse 6, it says the foundation hasn't been laid. The altar's been laid, and that's good. You know, that's a good start. But the foundation hasn't been laid. They built the, the altar so they could, they could perform the sacrifices, so they could keep the feast. And of course, that's honorable before the Lord. Of course it was. But the Lord hadn't called them back just to build an altar. He called them back to build the house of God once again. Lock, stock, and barrel. Now, there's a few possibilities as to why. The work had been delayed. Verse 7 uh, gives us a little indication that um, they needed materials. Um, you know, stuff had to be brought in to build it. And, you know, there's no doubt that, you know, you need materials to do projects like that. And preparation is good. So you could say, well, you know, wait until they had everything in place to start moving forward. It was probably a good idea from a practical point of view, if you wanted to argue their case a little. Um, but also, if you remember... When they built the altar, the first thing they did was keep the face. They keep the face. 
Now, when they, when they come in the, um, in the second month of the second year, verse 8, that's, you know, prime just feast time. The first month in the sun, prime feast time. All the spring feasts fall in that little period. So, you know, what's happened in the first month that they couldn't go about the work? They're keeping the feast. They're keeping the feast. And, and, you know, again, from their point of view, if you wanted to build a case for them to say, well, why haven't you done the work? They'll say, well, we're waiting for the materials. We're waiting for everything to be in place. We're waiting for everything to be right before we move forward and, and, and do that work that the Lord has clearly commanded us to go and do. And then not only that, you know, we, 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 we built the altar and we kept the Feast of Tabernacles, but then we moved on and, and as we were waiting for the materials, you know, time crept on and it came to the first uh, month of the year and the Nissan and we had the spring feasts and you know that they're important and you know that you're, they're commanded of God. So we had to do them and they took priority. Therefore, the work that we were commanded to do by God had to take a back seat until we were ready to get back to it and do it well. And from all intensive purposes, those reasons aren't bad reasons. They're not, oh, you know, I couldn't be bothered. The football was on. Couldn't be bothered. I had ah, just other stuff to do. These reasons, they, they had some credibility. You know, they wanted to do a right job for the Lord. Also, they wanted to keep the feast. They're commanded in the Levitical system of worship. So, you know, surely that should take priority. And, and, and yes, and yes, and yes, we can answer. They're all fine. But at the end of the day, there's still excuses. There's still excuses. No matter how good they look, there's still excuses. And when it comes to us and the things that we have in our own lives that we start and we don't finish, we can come up with umpteen million excuses. You know, I had a, a, when we lived in Spalding, I had a DIY project for Claire at, where I had to put some wooden floor down in the downstairs toilet and uh, entrance hall. And, you know, I had got the, got the floor in and I, and I um, looked at the job I looked at the floor and I thought, I want to do this right. So I need to, you know, carve out some time. I'll come back to this when I can do a proper job. So a few weeks, shall we say, later, <laughs> on, under duress, I thought, right, I'll get back to this job. So I started it, took all the woodwork off, which was a nightmare, put the floor down. And to be honest, when I'd done that, I just I had enough so I thought, that'll do for now. You know, there's church stuff on. There's important stuff to do. And, you know, family life, whatever. I'll leave that. I'll come back to it in a couple of days. A few weeks passed. <laughs> and under duress, <laughs> I had to finish that project. And, you know, Claire's like, when are you going to do this? You need to get it done. It's not finished. But Claire, I've got all this and of all that. The reality was, they were all excuses. I could have and I should have just started the job and finished the job as I said I would. And, and in life, that's the way it is. We can come up with umpteen excuses. It's no different in the work of the Lord and the local assembly. No different. Because we can come up with umpteen excuses that sound good. 
They may even have a holy tinge to them. But the reality is, we should be about God's work, God's way, in God's will, without excuse. Not, Lord, I've got, there's better things, or, oh, Lord, there's priority. No, the work of the local assembly is the priority. It is. And I think this is, again, this is something that's being lost in, 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 in the teaching from pulpits, but also in the understanding from the pew. And, and if you've been doing our Sunday night series, we're, we're, we're doing eschatology, Sunday of end times. But if you remember, I, I showed you this, the, the, the diagram of the three A's. Eschatology, ecclesiology, so end time study, it's important in churches. Study and understanding of the body of Christ, supremely important. And then at the top of that little point is our evangelism, because everything comes out of our understanding of that. It's our work. And, and we miss it that, that we are not to fit the body of Christ into our lives. That's not, that's not how it works. Oh, but I need to do this and I need to do that. And, and, and these are all good. But when you stand before the Lord, do you honestly think that those excuses, if that's what they are... Now, now let, let me caveat this. Sometimes we have real valid reasons. And that's fine. But sometimes we present real valid reasons that are really excuses. And we know that. All of us do this. And when we stand before the Lord, there's, there's no, you know, you're not going to pull the wool over his eyes. It's just not going to happen. So when we think about our work in the local assembly, when we think about the work that these uh, uh, remnant were doing, they had stopped and they had their reasons, but there was no reason why they should have stopped. None. They should have continued with the work. They continued with the work. Why? Because it was the work of God that they were commanded to do. There needs to be no other explanation than, than that. So the work, it was a delayed work, but it, it was a desired work. And that's important. Because, you know... <laughs> It is my job to, to teach biblical truth on the body of Christ and to highlight the importance of it. So, you know, and, and not that I want to beat us all over the head because I'm as equally convicted when I'm preaching as anybody here. And, and, but here's the thing. Just because we delay the work of God doesn't mean that it's not a desired work of God in our hearts. We're not called to it. We do desire the work of the Lord to go on. I don't believe there's anybody within this church that doesn't desire that. And the work in, in uh, Ezra chapter number 3, as the people come back, it was a, it was a desired work. And, and here's the thing. Because it was a desired work, the, 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 the uh, intention was there. It had just been covered up by all the other things in life or all the other things that come in and distract it. And what was required at that time to stir the people back up was godly leadership. People in high places put there by God to be able to turn around and say, let's rise people and get about the work because the desire was there. And it's the same in churches today. Those that are born again believe the word of God. Um, or, you know, it's not uncommon that, that 
we have the same battles that, you know, people are in and out of the local church body and not everybody supports everything and, you know, it can be a bit of a battle at times. But that doesn't mean that the desire's not there. You're not dealing with unsaved people in the body of Christ. You're dealing with saved people that are suffering under the curse of sin, also suffering with the pressures of life, also suffering with the demands of their time from all angles. And sometimes we fall to that and God's work gets put to a second. But we don't write ourselves off because we are the beloved of God. We are the blessed of God. And we should have that desire. It's just a case that that desire might have been buried a little. And that's why it takes godly leadership to stand up and raise the people into action. Look at verse 9. Is a three. Then stood Yeshua with his sons and his brethren, Kadamil and his sons, and the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God. So here, you know, Yeshua is the, the leader, one of the leaders of the people that comes back. He raises those below him and those below him raise the others and notice the key word in there and this is key and we looked at this uh, uh, in, in previous weeks together then stood Yeshua with his sons his brethren Kadamil and his sons and the sons of Judah together to set forward the workmen in the house of God so godly leadership United leadership of those that have been placed in those positions by the Lord, that have been voted in to those positions in the local assemblies. We talk about the church that have been given that authority by the people to stand up and speak into their lives, get up and they stand and they look at it and go, we should be about God's work in God's way, in God's will. And they stand up and they declare it. And that's what's happening here as the leaders stand up and then the people are roused, the workmen get back about the work. And there's a unity in that. There's a unity. It's not of them and us. There's a unity. They're together. Unity of direction and a unity of desire. And the Lord himself says in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. If you read that Psalm through, you'll see at the end the Lord commands a blessing. The Lord loves to see his people unifying. The body together, working together. But at times it takes Godly leadership to stand up and say those things that people maybe might not want to hear. To, to let them rediscover the desire that's in there because you're of God. So how can you not have that desire? It's just your flesh and the, the world that you live in has pushed that. It has suppressed that. Maybe your heart's hardened a little as we've looked at that this morning and you've drifted from God and then it's easier to step away from the things of God. But the Word of God tells us that we're to be devoted to God. We're to be dependent upon God. We're to give all to Him in the service of His body, the local assembly. And we're to do that together, unified. And we're to get about his work. So the work of the local assembly in Ezra chapter 3 is now beginning. So let's have a look then, secondly, at the worship of the local assembly. We've looked at their work. Let's look at their worship. Verse 10. 
And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together, that word together again, by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy, mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So as we think about the worship of the local assembly, I want you to see, firstly, that it was a dedicated worship. The foundation was laid, and once the foundation was laid, the worship began. So there was an order to it, because God is a God of order. We see that revealed in his character. God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. He's a God of order. And the Levitical system of worship was ordered. It was ordered, and and they get about it. Now, God has also has ordered his worship. That doesn't mean there's not liberty in worship. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit shouldn't move in worship. But there should be an order to it. There should be a form of reverence to your worship. Otherwise, is it really worship? So there can be freedom in worship, absolutely, but not a free-for-all. It needs to be ordered in some form. And, and this worship, as they uh, met all those years ago, was dedicated after the ordinance of David. What was the ordinance of David? Well, if you turn to 1 Chronicles, chapter number 15. 1 Chronicles 15, you'll find out. In Chronicles chapter number 15. Here we have as the ark comes back. Verse 15. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the stave thereon, as Moses commanded, according to the word of the Lord. So notice, even the return of the ark was ordered. And David spake to the chief of the Levites to appoint their brethren, the singers, with instruments of uh, music, psalteries, and harps and cymbals, sounding by lifting up of the voice with joy. So there was a wonderful sound of worship as uh, the presence of God came back into the camp. And, and there was a wonderful sound of worship in Ezra chapter number 3 as they laid the foundation of the, the, the temple, the house of God. They had the altar. They'd laid the foundation. And that produces a response of worship. And there is praise. There, notice there are trumpets uh, being played. In verse 10, and of course, I said, again, if you've been here on Sunday nights, you'll be getting this in eschatology. Um, and even last week a little bit, we looked at this in terms of the face of Israel. One of the faces is the face of trumpets, always associated with the regathering of Israel in relation to the temple and the presence of God there. So here we have this trumpet, this wonderful cacophony of worship as the foundation is laid and the trumpets are playing. Now we wait for our own trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4, we wait for the rapture trumpet uh, that we could go at any time. But here they are. Their worship is ordered. They get things right in order. And when they've laid that temple, they begin to praise God. And that dedicated worship was also a declared worship. The people sang, verse 11, and they sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord 
because he is good and his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. You can put a little comma on there and we can take uh, application and say his mercy endures forever, comma, because we can apply that to ourselves. And when we worship and when we sing and when we praise, we should be remembering these very things. That we should sing together by course and praising, giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good and his mercy endureth forever. Interpretation towards Israel. Application for each and every one that knows him and loves him. We can sing this song to the Lord. And there's, so there's a great declared worship that people sing and um, they sing and no doubt they were singing with the top of their voices and they weren't singing so others would hear they were singing to the Lord. They were singing to the Lord. You know, one of the things I, I find is that people uh, struggle a little with singing in front of other people. Especially when you have such an amazing voice like mine. Or, you know, you know if you're not a singer, sometimes you can you sing out fully when you're worshipping the Lord because you're worried about what other people hear. Right? Yeah, come on. Truth. That's, that's the way it is. Those of us that are a bit older and don't really care anymore, we just, we just go for it. We just go for it. But here's the reality. You're not singing to anybody else. You're not singing to anybody else. You're singing to the Lord. You're singing to the Lord. And when you sing to the Lord and you sing uh, with everything, when the Lord hears that, when the Lord hears that, that is infinitely more pleasing to him than the greatest earthly singing voice anybody has in this world. And you could sit beside somebody who is a beautiful singer whose heart is hardened to God that maybe he doesn't even know God, but certainly somebody who's a Christian that's not living for God, that their, 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 their heart is, is hardened, their lifestyle is wrong, they're just not in the game at all. There's besetting sin in their life that they haven't dealt with before the Lord. When they sing to God, what he hears is not pleasing to his ears at all. It's like Neil's down a blackboard. Because you're not singing to somebody else. And you may be sitting beside that person who's, oh, aren't they an amazing singer? Let them worship the Lord. But their hearts are singing a different tune. And that's what God hears. And that's what true worship should be from the heart. So don't let the fear of others stop you praising your God. Sing unto him. Worship him. <coughs> Praise his holy name. And worship is so important in the life of the local assembly. So important. Because here's the thing. When you worship and sing praises unto God, and you sing entirely f- from your soul, and you're singing to God, it's probably the only time on this earth where your mind is not capable of thinking of anything else. It's not capable. And they've done studies, in, secular studies into this. And, and how the melody and, and the, mu, uh, the words trigger different parts of your brain. And when you sing and you're engaged in the, in the worship and you're singing, 
You can't think. Your, your brain is not programmed to be able to think about anything else. And here's the thing. You know, even this morning, we're in the preaching of God's word, but I know there's minds that have drifted on thoughts of things that are in their lives or other things or concerns or worries. It can happen. But when you're worshiping in praise to the Lord and you're singing from the depth of your soul, you're incapable of thinking about other things. Try it. When you're really singing unto the Lord, you try and think about anything else. So you're not thinking about anything else. And at that moment, it's a special moment because it's you praising your Lord, worshiping your Lord, not thinking about any of the cares and troubles and worries of life. It's an essential part of the local assembly. It should be dedicated. It should be ordered, just like it was in Ezra chapter 3. It also should be declared. Sing out and sing out loud. This is why I cannot wait for the mask to disappear because it does muffle our voices a little bit. The Lord hears and we work with what we have to. But for those that are, are, are willing and free to do this from, from next Sunday, we can sing and we can sing out unto the Lord without something blocking. It's an essential part. It's an essential part that our worship is dedicated and it's declared and that's what the worship of the local assembly in Ezra 3 was. And finally, we want to think about the witness of the local assembly. Let's turn back to our stay in Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. Notice what it says. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people for the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. So as we think about the witness of the local assembly here, I want you to notice that it is a divided witness. It's a divided witness. And here we have the age-old problem of comparison. Comparison. Comparison is one of the most wickedest, subtle, and most deadly things that can creep into your mind. That's why... I'm not a fan, particularly, of Facebook and social media. You know, I use it, but begrudgingly. Because it, it, it has, has brought the world of comparison to the doors of our children and our ministries and everything. And what happens is you go on to social media and the media in general and you look at somebody else's life, this picture that you see, well, smiles and financially okay and... No sicknesses, no troubles, you know, they, they look beautiful, whatever, whatever, and you're like, oh, I wish that was me. Or you go on and look at other ministries and you see, you know, all the, the, the great things they're doing, and you think, oh, why is that not happening in our church? It's comparison. It's comparison. Now, the reality is, those shops are, uh, shop, <laughs> uh, snapshots are literally that, there's no depth to them. There's no context. You don't know what's really going on. But you just see it and you think, oh, I wish, I wish. Why can't that be me? It's comparison. And it's deadly. Why am I going through, through such a rough time? Why always me? 
comparison. This is the question, why not you? Why not you? Comparison. And, and comparison only compares with those that have a better. We don't look at our lives and look at somebody that has a far worse and go, thank the Lord for what I have. And here's what's going on. Comparison comes in and then we have this divided witness. Some compared this temple to the foundation of Solomon's temple. And this foundation, and you know, the foundation sets a precedent for what the building's going to be. It's the footprint for what it's going to look like in terms of its size and its depth and its width and whatever. And they've looked at the foundation and they've said, this is nothing compared to Solomon's temple. What a, what a disaster. What a disgrace. We're going backwards. We're not where we were. It's not like it was in the old days. Now, I am in that age now where I'm saying that a little bit too much. But we say that, we look at it. But here's the reality. Here's the reality. That when we start to look at things and we compare them to the past, it's meaningless because the context is not the past. It's the present. It's the present. And the context of these people is that they have been in exile. They have had no temple. No place to worship. They've had nothing. And now God has sovereignly allowed them to come back into the land. He has sovereignly allowed them to start to rebuild the temple. He has divinely moved in men's hearts and used that pagan ruler to send those people back, fulfilling his prophecies. And they're back in the land. And that is the context. They have had no temple. No place to worship. And then was not the time for those to come along and look and say, this was nothing like it was before. Because before is gone. It's gone. It's not relevant in this aspect because it's about the here and now. They hadn't had a place to worship. God has given them a place to worship. And it's not the building that is of importance. It's the ability to worship the Lord that is the important thing. And that's what those people should have got. They should have understood that they would be blessed to have a foundation at all. And it's just the same for the context within COVID as we went through that and are hopefully coming out of it. You know, there are people that are still staying away from church because it's not like it was. It's not like the good old days. But here's the reality. This is where we are now and we make the best of what we have now. And some form of church is better than no form of church, regardless. That's the context. We can all look back and look at better days. But this is the day. This is now and this is where they were. And, and they were to, rather than to whine, they were to rejoice and get about God's work. But they didn't. It was a divided witness. And because it was a divided witness, it was also a damaging witness. It was a damaging witness. Because the noise of the wingers and the noise of the worshippers had mingled into one noise. It was undiscernible to those around. 
They couldn't hear fully one or another. Therefore, the message was lost. This crowning moment where they had built the foundation of the temple of God. This amazing moment in the repopulation of the land. Coming back to Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah, to the place where God had put his name. His elect people, his chosen people had come back into the land. The temple was being built. But those round around about it couldn't hear the witness of that joy because it was mingled with those that were whining and complaining because it wasn't what they were used to. It wasn't what they had before. It wasn't going to be good enough. And those that were rejoicing and saying, oh, praise the Lord, anything, anything, we'll take anything from the Lord. We've been starved of this. The two mingle. Nothing can be discerned by the outside ear. The witness was damaged. Verse 13, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shade of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. The people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. The witness of the local assembly in Ezra chapter number 3 was the divided one, unfortunately, which was a damaging one. And the message of the moment was lost in the witnessing world round about. So as we draw this to a conclusion, we think about the local assembly of Ezra 3. We see that the work, although it was delayed, it was desired. And with the right leadership, godly leadership, the right attitudes towards God, the things got back on track. The worship, it was dedicated, it was ordered, it was declared. They were given praise to God, giving God all the glory. But unfortunately, the witness that that could have been was divided and it was damaged as a result of the division. So what are we to learn as we wrap up with application? What are we to take into our context today as the local church? Well, we have to be mindful, number one, that the work must continue. The work must continue. There is no reason to stop. That means that we have to get creative, it means sometimes we have to be more sacrificial than at other times, whatever it may be. God's work must continue. It cannot be delayed. And there's a desire there to do it. We just have to seek the Lord and allow him to build us up in that. We have to go about things God's way. Also, our worship, it has to be dedicated. There has to be an order to it. There has to be a liberty to it, but there also has to be an order to it. And it has to be declared. We should not be ashamed to sing out unto the Lord and to worship Him and praise Him. And we should not be ashamed to have the windows open and for that entire street to hear us praise the Lord every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening. Our worship should be declared just like it was in Ezra chapter number 3. But here's the thing, our witness must not be divided. It must not be divided. We have to be together. Because if our witness is divided, if we're falling out with each other left, right and centre, our witness is damaged. And the world won't be able to hear the message of the gospel because it's mingled up in all the other stuff. It also means that as we move forward, we have to embrace new things we have to deal with what we've got 
you know, one of the things that the world is, is doing now, it's going into a stage where there's a lot of separation, there's a lot of isolation, there's a lot of people that, um, you know, maybe uh, have to, to isolate because of, you know, immune difficulties or whatever it may be. And so how do we, uh, do we just look back and say, well, you know, technology wasn't needed before, we don't need it now. Or do we say, no, actually, we have to embrace this technology to get our message out here because this is the context we live in. No, it's not the same as it was. But that doesn't matter because what was, was gone. Not our message, but our methods. We have to look and adapt as a local church. And to do that, we have to be together. And when we do that, our witness will be what it should be. And ultimately, we put our trust in the Lord. We're united in him so that our work is right, so that our worship is right, and then our witness is right, and then God will work. He will work, because he's promised to.